Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Have you ever done something awkward and then just thought about it for the next seven years? Like, I I don't know if you're anything like me, but I don't know, probably 50% of the nights I lay down to go to sleep and my brain decides that now is a really great time to think about that really embarrassing thing that I did years ago. And so you're not going to sleep right now, you're just going to feel uncomfortable for 20 minutes. And so I think back probably monthly to, there was a time in high school and this girl named Heather, she asked me out to the Sadie Hawkins dance, so she wrote me a little note, left me a little gift and asked me out. And I was an awkward kid and so I didn't know how to respond and so I texted my best friend Hunter and I'm like, Hunter, bro, Heather just asked me to Sadie Hawkins dance, what do I do? But in my moment of awkwardness and panic, thinking Heather's name and meaning to text Hunter, I sent that text to Heather. And it's fine, we still never talk, like it's, it's great. Um, so I, I think about that at least once a month. Um, Something that happens to me every week, um, as you can tell, I'm a larger than average human. And so what that means is that people just don't know how to hug me. And you know, there are a lot of Christians in here, we're very like touchy-feely, and so like a lot of times it's just like five foot nothing person who thinks that for some reason it's a good idea for them to go over the top. <laughs> so then I'm like, okay, we can, we can do this. And then we both realize how awkward it is, and we just walk away. Um, So, like, I I spend a lot of time not sleeping thinking about these awkward moments that I have. And honestly, I'm kind of insecure about it. Like, I spend way too much time thinking about it. Um, and, And I think all of us, we have, like, those, like, silly, funny, awkward, embarrassing moments that we, you know, spend way too much time thinking about. Uh, But if we're honest, I actually think that a lot more of our time and our lives and our mental energy is spent thinking of the bigger insecurities that we have. Not just the the small embarrassing ones, but the really, really big ones. I think we are all in a constant state of insecurity. Uh, I know we have a lot of kids and millennials in this room, and so social media is just our thing. And I'm convinced that Pretty much every single post on social media is just a thinly veiled cry for attention and affirmation. You want people to think that you're funnier than you are, your life is more exciting than you are, you're more spiritual than you are, so you'll take a picture with your friends and then you'll spend 15 minutes just trying to get the filters right. Like You just want to create this persona of what you want people to think that your life is actually like. You're you're not secure in who you are. Or if you're single, that can be a a tough place to be, especially in the church. The church a lot of times idolizes marriage, but if you're single, a lot of times it's easy to find your identity in not being married. And so you think, "I, I won't be happy until I'm married. That is my identity. That's who I am. Or if you are married and your marriage isn't perfect or your kids aren't perfect, then you're you're afraid that people are gonna see that your marriage and that your kids aren't perfect. And so we just spend all of this time just like trying to put on this persona to impress other people, to please other people, because we are not secure enough in who we are. I was listening to an audiobook this morning by a pastor, and he was counseling 
a couple uh, who their marriage was just in shambles. He, the husband, had cheated on the wife. The wife was just overly critical. Their marriage had been dead for years. And, and he had done counseling with them. He had prayed with them. He had called and checked up on them regularly. And then one day, the, the woman walks in and looks at this pastor and says, this is your fault. You weren't there for me. Now, the, now the pastor didn't cheat on her. The pastor wasn't the critical one. They, he wasn't the one arguing. But this woman accused him and said, this is your fault. And immediately he felt in himself like that anger rise up. And he, he wanted to defend himself and say, no, 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 no. That's not me. That's you. But he had to remind himself that his identity isn't in his ability to fix them. His identity doesn't depend on what other people think of him. And so we spend all of this time and all of this energy asking, am I being liked? Am I being respected? Am I being noticed? And it's exhausting. And in our passage for today, Jesus is being none of those things. He's not being respected. He's actually being critiqued. He's being falsely accused. But what Jesus does different than what we so often do is he doesn't get super defensive. He doesn't start lashing out. He doesn't start trying to defend himself or create a better perception of who he is in in the other people's eyes. He is secure in who he is because he knows who he is and whose he is. He did not lose one minute of sleep when people didn't see him for who he was. Because when you know your identity, when you know who you are and whose you are, that frees you up from trying to earn approval and to find your worth and your value in everybody else. And it gives you the confidence and the freedom to just go and live your life. So for for the last few weeks, we've been working through uh, John chapter 8. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. We're going to be in John chapter 8 at the end of the chapter. And throughout the last few weeks, Jesus has been having uh, this conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jews. And he'd been teaching, and in John 8 verse 30, we, we read that many believed in him. And so last week, picking up in verse 31, Jesus said to those who had believed in him, and we talked about how in the book of John, there are three kinds of believers, these kinds of people who believed in Jesus. One kind of believer is a true believer. They have true, genuine, saving faith in Christ. The other kind of believer is the unbeliever. They readily admit, like, I see Jesus. No, not for me. I'm not buying it. And the third category is the person who thinks that they are a believer, but upon a little digging, we find out that they're not. They, they have a false faith. And so that, that's kind of, uh, we're picking up on the tail end of that conversation. Uh, Jesus is talking with people who think that they are believers. And so we're, we didn't read this passage Uh, But just before, uh, we're going to be in verse 48, but just before that, Jesus had been talking with these Jews and they had claimed Abraham. They said, we're descendants of Abraham, and that makes us the spiritual elite. Because we're related to Abraham, the father of the faith, that makes us better than everybody else. And so Jesus, he hasn't been afraid to insult people, you know, and so 
as they said, you know, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, you say that Abraham is your father, but if Abraham was your father, then you would do the works that Abraham did, which was to believe. But the fact that you don't believe like Abraham shows that Abraham isn't actually your father. So do you want to know who your father is? Jesus said, Satan is your father. The devil is your father. He's just slapping these Jews across the face. And so for for this week, we are picking up on the tail end of this ridiculously insulting conversation, and we are going to see how Jesus responds. So uh, pick up with me in verse 47. Again, the tail end of this conversation, after he'd said, your father is of the devil, Jesus said, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And so to conclude this bananas insulting conversation, Jesus says, only if you are of God can you hear the words of God, but you're not of God, so you can't hear this. So if I were Jesus, the the conversation would have been over right there. Their father is the devil. They are spiritually deaf people. Like John chapter 8 would have ended right there. I wouldn't have bothered even wasting my breath. They're just a hopeless cause. But they keep going. And so in verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, to the Jews, there was nothing worse than a Samaritan. The Samaritans were half-breeds in their eyes. So centuries before when the Jews had gone off to exile, some of the Jews had married uh, Gentiles, people who were not Israel's. So they married Gentiles and began to worship the Gentile gods. And these people became known as Samaritans. So the Jews viewed these people as traitors, as half-bloods. And so these people, in response to Jesus, start this part of the conversation pretty much using a racial slur. You're you're a half-blood. And then on top of that, oh yeah, and you have a demon. So like, if I were Jesus, like, I just, I wouldn't even be having this conversation. You're of your father, the devil. You're spiritually deaf. You just used a racial slur against me, and you said I have a demon? Like, those are fighting words. I, I would have started punching them or insulting them, or I would have started to defend myself, saying like, no, 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 I'm, I'm actually not a Samaritan. Like, look at my genealogy, or I'm not a demon, like you idiots. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't respond that way. He is secure enough in who he is. He doesn't feel the need to defend himself or to be misunderstood. He is secure enough in who he is. And I think that the reason he responds, I think there are two reasons for the way that Jesus responds the way that he does. The first one is that Jesus wasn't pharisaical towards the Pharisees. Jesus didn't hate and oppose and challenge the people who hated and opposed and challenged him, like all of us do. He did just the opposite. When people hated him, he loved them and he showed them grace. So back in chapter 3, verse 17 of John's gospel, we read that God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Okay, so, so in a few minutes, Jesus is going to say to these people who are insulting him, if anyone believes in me, if anyone keeps my word, then they will never see death, that you will live. And so he's basically saying to these people, I know that you don't accept me. I know that you don't know the Father, but I still love you. I'm still offering grace to you. Anyone, anyone, all you have to do is to look to me by faith and you can be saved. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the son as of the only father, full of grace and truth and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus shows grace to these people. But the second reason Jesus can respond the way that he does is because he knows who he is and he knows whose he is. And so when he gets attacked, when he gets called a racial slur, when he gets you know, accused of having a demon, let's look at how Jesus responds in verse 49. Very calmly and very dispassionately, Jesus said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So what gave Jesus the confidence and the security to respond as graciously as he did, to not lash out, to not be insecure? It was his relationship with his father. It was his relationship with his heavenly father that freed him up from having to seek the approval of everyone else around him. He didn't have to seek his own glory. He didn't have to defend himself because he knew that his father is the one who cared about him the most and that his father is the one who sought his glory. His identity wasn't in what other people thought of him. His identity was in his father. So we read in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus prays to the Father, Father, glorify me with the glory that we had before the creation of the world. So the idea is that for all of eternity past, that the members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they glorified one another, they honored one another, they loved one another, and they did it perfectly and infinitely for all of eternity past. And then when Jesus stepped into time, into this world, in Matthew 4, at his baptism, as he comes up out of the water, you, you, we hear the voice of the Father coming, speaking down, saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Just a few chapters ago in John chapter 5, verse 20, we read, we read that the Father loves the Son and shows the Son all that he himself is doing. And so throughout the Bible, the Father is always pouring his love out on the Son, always expressing his affection, saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. We've been doing it for eternity past. I'm doing it now. We're going to do it for eternity future. I love him. Do you know what happens when you're on the receiving end of that kind of loving relationship? When you are loved fully, unconditionally, perfectly when you just have affection and affirmation constantly poured out on you, that is a kind of love that casts out fear. A fear of being rejected by other people. A fear of being misunderstood by other people. A fear of not being noticed by other people. When you are so full of that kind of love, 
When you have that relationship with the Father, you don't care what other people think of you. You have all the love that you need. And part of the good news of the gospel is that it wasn't just Jesus who enjoyed that security in his identity with the Father, but he offers it to us as well. If you look to Christ by faith, then you are considered just as lovely and just as beautiful to the Father as Jesus is. So so the word Christian doesn't occur a lot in the New Testament. I I think what the New Testament writers prefer is being in Christ. That's how they define our relationship to God. And when you are in Christ, it's as if the Father looks at you and Christ, his Son, his work, his blood is surrounding you. So that when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you for your sin or your inadequacies. He sees his Son, whom he loves, whom he pours out his affection on. And he loves you the same way if you are in Christ. And so you can have that same confidence, assurance, and security if you know who you are and whose you are. If you belong to the Father, if your identity is there. But it gets better. So Jesus has been talking this, about this one kind of freedom, this freedom from trying to be a people pleaser and to find your value in other people. And in verse 51, he transitions to another kind of freedom, a greater freedom. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Death has a stranglehold over this world. We know that the wages of sin is death, and because we are all sinners, we will all die. Everyone in this room will die. Death bats a thousand percent. We can't escape it no matter what we do. We are all slaves to it. And in our world, our culture is obsessed with trying to escape death. And so I, I have no problem with taking really good care of our bodies. I think it's a gift from God and we should steward it well. But I wonder the people who like go to the gym nine times a week and like won't eat a single gram of fat, I'm wondering like how much of that is actually being a good steward of your body or how many of those people are just trying to postpone the inevitable for five or maybe 10 years. I've read this week, I'm sure some of you have heard about it, I think it's pronounced uh, cryogenics or cyronics, I don't know how to say it. Uh, you probably know what it is, but it's this idea of having your body or your organs frozen. And hopefully, in the future, once medicine and technology uh, develop more, that they will be able to bring you back to life. And, And so there are people paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to have their bodies and their organs frozen just on the hope they might be able to escape death and come back in a better time or place. In one article I read, there was a woman who said that even if I have to come back as a cyborg slave laborer, I would prefer that to dying. Death is inevitable and our culture hates it. And it will do anything it can, including freezing your brain, in order to try and escape it. And into our world that is obsessed and 
terrified of death, Jesus says maybe the most liberating words in all of Scripture. If you keep my word, you will never see death. Well, what does that mean? Like, we all know Christians who have died. Jesus died. Like, how, how, how does that work? Well, if we turn to John chapter 11, you don't have to, but we'll get there in a few weeks. John, or Jesus is about to have this big showdown with death. His friend Lazarus is in the tomb. And in verse 34... Sorry, I'm lost on my notes. There we go. In John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Though you die, you will live. Now, if that were it, that'd be good enough. Sign me up. Like, I'll die, but then I'll live which I think is probably what most Christians view of eternal life and life in Christ. Right? But Jesus actually goes a lot further. In a different passage in John, in John 5, he says something more amazing. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, the Father, has eternal life. He did not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So so did you notice the difference there between John 11 and John 5? In John 11, Jesus says, you will die and then you will live. But in John 5, he says that if you are in Christ, then you have already passed from eternal death to eternal life. It's like if you are in Christ, it's like Jesus leapfrogs over death and he grabs you and he gives you that eternal life now while you are still living. And so if you are a believer, if you are in Christ, death has no power over you. You have already crossed it. You have beaten it. It cannot touch you. And just think how your life would be different if you lived like that was a reality. If you lived like death had no power over you, like you had already beaten it. One, you wouldn't care what other people think of you. Like your biggest problem's already been taken care of. You can give your life radically. You don't have to worry about trying to escape death, but you can give your life as a sacrifice to kingdom work because you're not scared of what happens at the end of your life. You can give your life to serving other people. You can give your life to serving the church. You can give your life to be a foreign missionary to an unreached people group. You can give up everything because you're free from your biggest problem. You no longer fear death. I I was thinking about this last night, and um, I was thinking of the Duguses. And if you hang out with the Duguses, they have this really cool thing they do with their kids where, like, They'll say like, hey, kid, what do we deserve? And the kid, it's really small, they'll, bell, they'll yell back like, death and hell. And then it's a gospel moment where they can say, yes, that is what we deserve. But in Christ, we don't have to face death and hell. So from a very young age, they are teaching these kids what they deserve, but also the good news of the gospel. 
And if you knew that you deserved death and hell and that you had been delivered from it, your biggest problem has already been taken care of. And so, so whether you are 80 years old or eight, let me plead with you to live like your biggest problem has already been taken care of. If you're eight years old, give your life to the kingdom. Spend your entire life laying it down for God's purposes to see other people come to know him because your biggest problem has already been taken care of. You don't have to live a life chasing the American dream or chasing the approval of other people. You can just live your life knowing that you are secure in the Father and that death will never touch you. Or if you're 80 years old, most of your life is behind you. Your body is slowing down and physically you are dying. Know that you are approaching the day where death will not touch you and you will go into eternal life. I'm reminded of the words of Billy Sunday. He was a baseball player turned evangelist in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he said, one day I'm going to die. And you're going to read about it in the newspaper. Well, don't you believe a word of it. For on that day, I'm going to be more alive than I have ever been. And so to our older seasoned saints here in the congregation, like, don't slow up. You are getting closer and closer and closer to your reward. Death is close, but it has no power over you. So live like your biggest problem has been taken care of. So that's the good news. And how did the Jews react to this good news? You can be free from the approval of other people, that you can be free from the fear of death. They said, oh, now we know that you have a demon. <sighs> Idiots. <laughs> Just proves that Satan is their father. And they kept on. They said, Abraham died, as did the prophets. Are you greater than Abraham? Who do you think you are? And that, that's really the central turning point. That is the crux question of this passage. Who do you think you are? What is your identity? What defines you? Who are you? And whose are you? Is it your marriage, your lack of marriage, your job, your kids? Or is it your identity with the Father? Is that where you answer, that's who I am? That's where my value and worth comes from. And so again, Jesus' security is astounding because he knows who he is and who he is. He doesn't get defensive. He just immediately starts talking about his father again. I don't have to seek my own glory. It's my father who glorifies me. You don't know him, but I do. So he reestablishes that identity, but he doesn't stop there. I think his temper's kind of starting to run short with these Jews. So he's going to teach them something today. All right, you hear these you know, experts of the Old Testament, you know your Bible, well, let's learn something. And throughout John's gospel, Jesus has been in kind of this uh, rising battle. This, there's been this increasing tension between Jesus and the Jews and the Pharisees and the scribes. And so, um, and he's been speaking in this like weird, veiled, mystic language where like, he'll say something and they just don't get it. I think Jesus has had it. And he's like, all right, I'm finally going to speak your language. Do you want to keep talking about Abraham? Fine. Let's talk Abraham. And so in verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
Abraham rejoiced when he saw Jesus' day, and when he saw it, he was glad. Now, there are a lot of potential meanings to that verse. Personally, I think that's referring to Genesis 12, where God gave all of the promises to Abraham. He said, go to the land that I will show you, that you will be the father of many nations, and that one of your descendants, that one of your future children, he will be the Messiah, and through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so I think as uh, Abraham went throughout his life, and eventually, even though you know, they were a hun- he and his wife were 190 years old when they had their son Isaac, by faith, he was able to say, one day from my line is going to come the Messiah who blesses the entire world. And so by faith, he was looking forward to Jesus' day, and when he saw it, he was glad. So Jesus is saying to these Jews, all right, so Abraham's your boy. He's your spiritual hero. He's your spiritual giant. You, you hold close to him. If you want to be like him, then do what he did. Look to me and be glad. Look to me by faith and be glad as well. But again, because they are not of God and because their father is the devil, they just, they don't get it. They just can't wrap their minds around it. They're just thinking too simplistically. So they say, all right, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say that you have seen Abraham? And Jesus, he just drops probably one of the hugest God bombs in all of the Bible. And if you've been with us as we've studied John, you'll have picked up that there are several I am statements in the book of John. And most of them are metaphorical. You know, Jesus will use something physical to make a spiritual point. You know, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, or I am the true vine. So most of them are metaphorical, using a physical thing to point to a spiritual thing. But here, there is no metaphor. There is no physical thing. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am period. There's nothing after that. I am, period. And again, tension had been rising between Jesus and the Jews, and for a while they had been attempting to corner him or trap him or eventually, you know, have this Jesus problem taken care of. But when he said this, they picked up stones right then and there. He, he had crossed a line. He had gone too far, and they wanted to kill him on the spot. But what does it mean? I am. What does that mean? If you would, turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus is in the Old Testament. It's the second book of the Bible, right after Genesis. And just for a little context, this is when God has told Moses to go before the Israelites and to go before Pharaoh and to demand the Israelites' freedom. And Pharaoh was a powerful dude, most powerful man in the world. And Moses was not that impressive of a man. He had been a murderer. He'd been off hiding in the wilderness for 40 years. He had a speech impediment. And so Moses was thinking like, okay, God, if I go before the most powerful man in the world and demand these people's freedom, like, who's going to believe me? 
Like, I can't go on my own authority because I, I can't even say the words right. If Pharaoh and Israel, if they're going to believe me, I have to be able to tell them who sent me so that they'll believe your authority more than mine. So that's the background. So pick up with me. Exodus 3, verse 13, we'll read through verse 16. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What's his identity? Who is it? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So before he went on his task, Moses asked God, okay, who are you? What's your identity? What's my confidence that I can go before these people and they will believe me? And to answer his question, God gave Moses his name, Yahweh, which means I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. It's a lot of theology packed into one little Hebrew word. But basically, God is making a statement about how eternal he is and about how unchanging he is. And so I read a lot of theologians this week. I was reading C.S. Lewis and A.W. Tozer trying to wrap my mind around, you know, God being eternal and how to explain that and You know, like all metaphors and analogies, they all fall short of the reality. So I'm just going to explain it to you how it was explained to me when I was a kid. And we were at the dinner table, and I was probably seven or eight years old, and I asked my mom, like, Mom, God made us, right? That's right, son. Okay. So who made God? Well, no one did. Well, how does God exist if no one made him? Well, son, that's what makes him God. Nobody made him. If somebody had made him, then the thing that had made him would be God. He has always been the same. He has always existed. He is unchanging for all of eternity. And so God can't improve because to improve means that he was lesser than at some point. And he can't become less, because if he became less, then he would no longer be perfect and would no longer be God. And so God simply is perfect for all of eternity. I am who I am. I am the same today, yesterday, and forever. He never changes. And that was good enough for my eight-year-old brain, and honestly, I haven't really been able to improve much on it. So I think that's good enough for us. Um, my pre- preaching professor, Dr. Robert Smith Jr., he, he liked to sum it up a little quicker like this. He would say uh, that God is the eternal noun, N-O-U-N, that I am that I is, I am that I am, and I am that I will be. It's not good grammar, but it's excellent theology. So Jesus quotes this passage from Exodus, and then back in John 8, With that background, now we understand why the Jews got so mad at him. 
Jesus could have said, if he was just trying to say that he was older than Abraham, he would have said, before Abraham was, I was. But he took it a step further and said, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning, I am that same God who revealed himself to Moses. From eternity past to eternity future, I am unchanging. I am perfect. He was making a statement about his own divinity, that he is equally divine and equally as eternal as the Father. He is claiming to be God. And to those who don't have ears to hear, to whose father is the devil, it sounds like blasphemy. And so they picked up stones and they were going to try and kill him right there. But to those of us who by the Spirit have had our eyes and our hearts open to the truth, who recognize that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the eternal I am, these are words of life. They ring true. And the truth sets us free. Our God is a triune and an eternal God. That is his identity. Psalm 90, my favorite psalm, says that before God created the heavens and the earth from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He is unchanging. And the good news of the gospel is that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ, without ceasing to be God, without ceasing to be eternal, came to our earth and he put on flesh and he walked among us. And for 33 years, he never forgot who he was and whose he was. He was from the Father. He was loved and affirmed by the Father, and he was on a mission from his Father. And he offers that same comfort, that same security, that same identity to us if you look to him by faith. And the reason why he can say to us that we will never see or taste death It's because he did. He went to the cross. That was his identity as the son being sent by the father about to be about the father's business. It was part of his goal and his purpose in coming to die that he could set us free. And if you are in Christ, if you look to him by faith, he died the death that you already deserved. Your biggest problem has already been taken care of. And when your biggest problem has already been taken care of, that frees you up. You don't have to think about those awkward moments you had in high school or the weird hugs that you have every week. You don't have to be afraid of death. You can be free to lay down everything for the kingdom. Let me pray that the Lord would give us grace to do these things. God, we praise you for who you are, for being eternal, for being unchanging. We praise you for, without ceasing to be God, for coming to us, for living the life that we could not live, and for dying the death that we deserved. We ask that you would remind us of who we are and whose we are, that we are in Christ, that we are loved, that we are accepted, that we are equipped, that everything that we have and everything that we need is in you. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.